Historically and today, our country has been overrun by those with money and power, giving little voice to the everyday American. We're here to change that. Welcome to All Rise, the Libertarian Way with retired Judge Jim Gray. Each week, our program addresses the problems we are facing in our country, as well as thought-provoking and effective libertarian solutions. This could change the way you see opportunities in your life and your children's lives as well. Now, here is Judge Jim Gray. Well, hello and welcome wherever you are in our great country or around the world. This is Judge Jim Gray on the Voice America Variety Channel, and I'm just always excited to be able to be be with you for another edition of All Rise, the Libertarian Way with Judge Jim Gray. We talk about issues. In fact, we all know, and I say this frequently on this show, that there are a lot of bad things happening in the world, but you know, there's some good things happening too. And, And some of them is this group called Doctors Without Borders that is inspirational from my standpoint, because yes, there are a lot of bad things happening in the world, and they go there to help people who have been physically injured, uh, or psychologically even. Uh, They are a first-line defense doctor's organization that simply deserves to be appreciated and applauded. And our guest today is Karen Stewart, who's with Doctors Without Borders. She's telling me that right now she doesn't really even have a home. She moves from town to town, place to place, with her position at Doctors Without Borders, but this really is an outstanding organization, and that's why we've asked Karen Stewart of Doctors Without Borders to be with us as our guest this week on All Rise. So, Ms. Stewart, welcome, and thank you for what you do. Thank you so much, Judge Jim. I'm happy to be here to talk with you. Well, give us some background about you, first of all, and how you kind of became involved with that great group, Doctors Without Borders. I know it's a French group. I, I don't speak French, uh, but tell us what the French name is, and then uh, who is Lisa, who, excuse me, who is Karen Stewart? Well, I, quite yes. Worldwide, we are known kind of by our acronym as MSF, which stands for Medicine Sans Frontières, so our French name meaning Doctors Without Borders. So pretty much in every country, people just know MSF, and that's how we refer to it, too. Um, for myself, I actually, I'm going to take you back to 2002. I received a phone call that year that my sister, my only sibling, had taken her own life. And it made for a very difficult year. Um, by the end of it, I was really struggling. Then I had another family loss. Then into 2004... And actually, it took me to a place of, I don't know, re-looking at my life, I guess you could say, and figuring out, am I really doing what I want to do? And the answer was no. I had had a dream to work abroad for many, many years, and I decided to finally go for it. So my background is mental health. I'm a master's in social work. I'm a licensed clinical social worker. And I worked here in the U.S. probably... At that time, about 15 years in mental health, addiction, HIV, AIDS, hospital settings, community-based settings. And I just really wanted to take like all that education, all that experience and go and work abroad. So that's how I ended up with MSF. And I started with them in 2004. You know, Karen, Ms. Stewart, I believe that one of the worst things that can happen to a human being is to be on your deathbed and look back over your life and think, I wish I would have or I wish I would not have. 
you know, we only have, I don't know your various religions beliefs, but, but we only have one life here. Let's take advantage of it. Let's pursue those dreams. Uh, last week we had a guest, Lisa Turner, whose dream was to be a pilot and she built her own plane and flew it uh, a long way and stuff. It just then wrote a book about it. That was her dream. This was your dream. And you're, you're really contributing mostly because of course you're living, you're living your dream and contributing back to society. So, so how did you choose Doctors Without Borders? There are really not many groups like this. Uh, how did you choose them? And, and uh, tell us what they do. Well, I actually did look at several groups, but um, what stood out for me with Doctors Without Borders is their principles. So they're talking, they're independent, they're impartial, they're neutral. So for me, that was a huge selling point. Like, I want to go and I just want to help people. I don't want to carry around some agenda I honestly did not want to go with kind of a U.S. project. I wanted to go with a more neutral project. The other big thing about Doctors Without Borders that attracted me was the team concept. So when I'm in the project, I have my mental health. I go as a mental health officer, but I can spend 10, 12, 14 hours a day focused on mental health because all of my other needs are taken care of. We have staff that are, are managing their drivers. There's cooks, there's cleaners, interpreters, right? So I can really focus on what I'm doing. So that was another huge piece of why I chose them. And actually, I went through the interview process and was successful because it's very competitive um, to get into a lot of these agencies and definitely with Doctors Without Borders. But let me tell you, so um, they've been around since 1971, and... One of the big principles for them is bearing witness. So that's how it was formed. There was a couple doctors and journalists in Nigeria. They were seeing that the Nigerian government was actually starving its people. They were working for the International Red Cross at that time. And the International Red Cross was not allowed. There was a mandate to not speak out, to not bear witness of what they see. So this small group of journalists and doctors broke away and said, we're going to form our own agency, our own organization that allows us to speak out about what we see. So that's what it's based on. And and all these years, what we do, we provide medical assistance to people who are affected by conflict, epidemics, natural disasters, even exclusion from healthcare. So that's kind of how we're out there. Are you permanently in any place as such providing these services, or do you move around to where the cataclysms occur? You know, we move around. Right now, we are in 70 countries, 70, at about 450 projects, and we have over 43,000 staff in the field. And about that, it's interesting to know that of that staff, 45% of those people are non-medical. So if you think about how much it takes behind the scenes, to do what we do, we need logistics, we need supply, we need HR, human resource, we need admin, we need finance people. So a huge chunk of who's in the field are actually non-medical. And then we, you know, it depends, honestly, Judge Jim, on, on the project. We might go in after a natural disaster, we might be in, we might be out in six months if the needs are met and the government system picked up or other agencies are working there. Or... We may be there for 30 years. You know, we've been in South Sudan. We've been in some of these long, long ones for 20 years. So it really depends on what's going on around. Are the needs still there? 
is how long we'll stay. Okay, take us back a couple of steps, if you would, uh, Ms. Stewart. Uh, Doctors Without Borders was formed. You say it was to bear witness, and it's just for all the right reasons, doing all the right things. And I know governments have been doing terrible things to their own people forever. But so you go in, you have medical doctors, you have nurses, you have mental health uh, people uh, and your staff. Uh, but but tell us exactly. So there's a there's an earthquake in Peru. Uh, they need some help. What do you do? Who, who do you take there? Uh, how do you choose a site? Uh, and tell us more, just rather fundamentally, what Doctors Without Borders is and what it does. Well, you know what? We um, would, the very first thing is do an independent needs assessment. That's a huge part of Doctors Without Borders. We are independent, right? So we're not going to just take that Peru government says, we need you to do these three things in this area. We're going to actually go there. We're going to do our own exploration, our own explo, if you will, look around. What are the needs? And then we'll, we'll see what we can do. I give an example. In, um, there was an earthquake in Indonesia, and we went. We looked around. The, there were no medical needs. The medical needs were being met. The, the country of Indonesia, the government, was strong enough, and there were many other actors involved. That they were taking up that. So it was like, okay, we don't need medical need. But what we did see was a desperate need for mental health. Nobody was doing that. And these people, you know, had lost loved ones, had been injured, whatever had happened, lost all their property. So that's the program we set up. So we go in and look around. We see what's being met, what's already happening, and where's the gap. And that's what we're going to do. So mental health is one of your programs. Tell us what some other ones are. We're, I mean, we're a medical organization. So we're doing immunization, vaccination, um, responding to epidemic, responding to cholera. We're doing any kind of surgeries, right, related to war and conflict. We are, mental health certainly is a big part. We're trying to make it a part of all projects. We're not quite there yet. We do water and sanitation because the bottom line is, Right? If the water and the sanitation aren't there, then we're going to have disease. That's just the way it is. So we do that. Um, we are not, we don't build shelters. That's not our area. We really stay in the lane of the medical assistance because that's what we do. So uh, don't, now, don't be hesitating. Brag a little bit. Tell us some of your success stories that have come about through this great group, uh, Doctors Without Borders. Don't be bashful. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm going to go for the big one. In 1999, we received the Nobel Peace Prize. <laughs> um, recognition of organizations pioneering humanitarian uh, work on many continents, right? So we, and we got prize money, $1 million, I think it was. But with that prize money, we established the Access Campaign. So the Access Campaign right now is having their celebration of 20 years. And it's an advocacy um, they're pushing to get access of, to develop, to really push for life-saving, life-prolonging medicine and tests and vaccines, right? So what happens, right? The pharmaceutical company, what's their top priority? They want to make their shareholders happy. So if a medicine or a test or a vaccine is not going to end big, or bring big money or boost stock prices, then they're probably going to let it go and not pursue it. So the access campaign is right in there saying, no, lives over profit. We, we believe that 
this is a matter of justice. This is not about charity that everyone should have access to these medicines. So I think, yeah, when I think about one of our hugest accomplishments, I have to say the access campaign. The main thrust of this show, All Rise, is that if we employ libertarian values, we will all rise together. And those libertarian values are, you know, honesty and independence and, and responsibility at all levels of society. And so we believe that the private individuals, private foundations, private groups are run better than many government agencies and you get a lot better result. Which do you believe is more efficient? Because you've seen, like in Indonesia, the the uh, medical surgery that was under control, the government had things in control. But but where do you believe that your group is stronger than government? And if any, where do you believe that many governments are can do a better job than Doctors Without Borders? You know, I've seen governments really trying and doing well, but there are so many places where the governments aren't functioning. So, I mean, Doctors Without Borders, we are a movement. We're a worldwide movement. We're actually owned and run by our staff, our past and present staff. So we're, we're a collective, and we have associations. So there isn't, there isn't the top-down. There isn't somebody sitting in Europe in our, you know, operational center telling us what's happening in the field. We're all sharing that together. So that's a piece that I appreciate. And, I mean, as far as, like, even when you look at uh, our funding, right? So a huge amount of, well, 100% of our funding comes from private contributions, but 88% of that's from individual donors who believe in our, our work and what we're doing. So all of that gives us the freedom to move forward and do what we can do, um, yeah, have I, I mean, I, again, I've seen, I think one of the issues I could talk to about government. So when we go somewhere, there's the Ministry of Health. So that's the health system that's operated by the government. And oftentimes they're trying, the people are very dedicated that are working there, but it's very possible they have not been paid for two or three months. It's very possible they have no medicine, no machines, no diagnostics, no, they're working with just such limited stuff that they can't do a good job, that they can't do what's needed. So that's why we come in and we actually support the Ministry of Health. We work alongside of them. So we're not saying government is bad and you're not doing it. We're just there to say, you know what, it looks like you're not, you can't manage. Let's help you. Let's support you. We always want to work beside them. We don't want to take over, you know, and do something and then leave or that kind of thing. We really work very hard to work with them. Um, and then, of course, when we're complete, we can hand over to them. So what you're really saying, I, I infer, is that you're flexible, that, that you go in, you're trained, you're caring, and, and you can see issues that need to be addressed, and you don't need to to appeal to the bureaucracy, to Mr. Big off in uh, uh, Washington or New York or Buenos Aires, uh, and you can just adapt and, and, and do it as opposed to a bureaucracy. Is that, and you're not a political threat to anybody. Uh, you're apolitical, I'm sure. You're just human-oriented. Am I capturing what you're, what you're saying? Absolutely, Judge Jim. That's it. That's it. Like, even when you think about our money, where it's coming from, we have um, five kind of companies or areas that we do not take money from. So we didn't take any money from the alcohol or tobacco industry. Why? 
Because, of course, both of those industries are negatively impacting our patients, right? They don't take any money from the arms industry, from the pharmaceutical industry, and from, like, the mineral, like, any extraction, oil, gas, any of those, right? Again, because of that conflict, it's like, no, we don't want to have any conflict of interest. We are independent. We are neutral. We're only there for the patient. Now, now, Karen Stewart, you're not, you're shocking me. You're, you're not telling me that there's strings attached to contributions, are you, from these various industries? Is that what you're trying to say? <laughs> I, I think there could be. <laughs> mm, okay. And, and of course, and, and, you know, there are numbers of, of doctor studies that are paid for by various industries and then they're looking over their shoulder. Well, my goodness, I'm going to have to support that industry or they're not going to continue to fund me. So good for you. You are independent in the true sense of the word. Again, giving me pride and making my monthly contribution on my credit card. Uh, tell us, tell us how people can contact your organization, get more information. And if they wish to join me in being a supporter, how they can do that, Karen. Well, absolutely. It all starts, we have a website, right? So it's um, doctorswithoutborders, all one line, .org. And with that, um, there's all kinds of choices there. There's a career drop-down if you're interested in going out in the field on assignment, and I'll give a few more details on that in a minute. There's, there's just a lot in the website, who we are, where we are, what we're doing. You can bring up a country and see specifically what's happening we have um, press releases there. We have research. We have a quarterly magazine. Like um, last year, there was one specifically on mental health. We did one on the access campaign. So those magazines have a support or a focus. And then also there's another drop down that talks about take action. Because it's not just financial. Yes, of course, donations are fabulous. But there's other ways. Maybe you could organize, people can organize a fundraiser. They can, um, a lot of companies have matching gifts. Right? If you donate X number of dollars, your company will as well. There's advocacy initiatives. We're doing a big campaign right now um, against Johnson & Johnson and some of their um, tuberculosis medications and getting those prices down. You can follow um, Doctors Without Borders on social media and certainly share. You can find out if there's an event in your area. We just did a On the Road, A Voice from the Field, which was a, like a traveling speaker series. And we hit the entire West Coast of the United States. And that's going to start up again in March, kind of more in the southern um, area of the country. You can join a student chapter. Right? We have 130 student chapters at universities throughout the country. Maybe even if you're in the New York area, you can volunteer at the New York office. We just have the one office in the United States, and it's in New York City. There was, to, to change the subject, I recall and I actually can't remember how many years ago, five maybe, that one of your facilities, one of your operating theaters was actually bombed. I'm not sure by whom, whether it was our forces or, or what was ever determined, but I know this has happened. I know it can be dangerous. Have you lost any of your people uh, to injury or even uh, being killed uh, in the field, Karen? We do, yes. Doctors Without Borders, we do have fatalities. It's, it's a very small percent when you look at that 43,000 people we have in the field. And it's interesting, too, of that 43,000, 90% of those people are locally hired. So of all the people in the field with Doctors Without Borders, only 10% of them are actually international staff coming in. 
And I say that because when it does come to bombings and accidents and fatalities, kidnappings even, often it is that national locally hired staff who are the people who are most at risk. So we've had, um, yes, we definitely lost people in the Kunduz bombing, um, in recent bombing in Syria, I believe. But uh, I think for right now, the, our, the most common, if you will, although it's not that often, would be um, car accident and illness as far as fatalities in the field. One of my regrets was when I was I was in the Peace Corps in a small town in Costa Rica, Palmar Norte, and I was there in physical education, recreation, and health. And bluntly, or rather basically, uh, most people there never had a solid bowel movement. That the water they drank had parasites in it, etc. And one of the things, my regrets was that I somehow didn't get a microscope and just take some of the standard water they were drinking and let people look at it and see these little things swimming around in it and then boil it uh, to uh, show them that now if they're, you boil your water, you're going to have a lot, lot better life. How much does Doctors Without Borders get into water purification, uh, water in education, that sort of thing, or, or do you do that at all? We do. I couldn't, I, can, I really can't tell you a percent of what we're doing, but um, when you think about it, yeah, water and sanitation are so um, imperative, right? Because if you do not have those in place. You can look at a refugee camp that started, and if you don't get your water and sanitation in place, you're going to have a cholera epidemic pretty darn quickly, right? So it's really important that there's any of the, I mean, I don't know the numbers, but children who die, I mean, one of the top reasons is diarrhea. So it's really important from the medical standpoint that we do look at water and sanitation. And often we do it, because we have the specialists, but we may work beside someone. We may find another actor who's actually there doing water and sanitation. We'll just kind of be beside them and say, okay, you've got that. We're going to do this. Sure, sure. Um, when you go into a, another country, I guess your base really, what is it, in Paris, in France? Well, we, have, we actually have many. Um, we have five operational centers. And yes, those five operational centers are all in Europe. Okay. So when you go into a country, and regardless, I'm assuming that you don't just come in without the agreement or permission from the government. You need visas and that sort of thing. But how do you approach the governments, or do the governments approach you, or both? It's both. Yeah, it can really depend on what the need is. Um, I mean, we again, we're we're always working independently, um, and we're trying to work with closely with that Ministry of Health. There are times when there is no functioning government, right? Look at Democratic Republic of Congo. Um, so we're there with a huge presence because there's just nothing, there's no uh, law in place. So we're just working there. But we can be invited. Um, if, if, need, if they invite us, we will go and have a look and see if we're needed. And other times we just go. Have you ever been refused entry uh, because you're seen as a political threat or you're used as a political football? Has that ever happened? I think, I mean, my own experience in Sri Lanka was um, we were allowed to come in the country, but we were very limited on what we were allowed to do. So this would have been the situation, if you think back, was at the height of the war um, where the the north was being bombed and all the people, the Tamil people, were coming down to the southern part of Sri Lanka. 
And it was an influx of almost 300,000 people coming down. And we just weren't ready. The UN, no one was ready for that amount of people coming down. And so we were allowed to be in country, but we could not enter the refugee camps that were being set up. So sometimes there's limits and we have to just keep talking with the powers of be and try and get them to understand what we can do and why we're here. Yeah. So I think one other example I can think of was when I was in Zimbabwe and there was a cholera epidemic and the government was saying, you know what? No, no, we've got it. We can handle it. We don't need you. So they, they wanted to kind of, uh, I could say save face, right? They didn't want the international community to actually see how bad things were. So there's just a lot of pieces to it. Um, depending on where we are. It's hard to believe, virtually inhumane to believe, that you would be there, you're a resource, and you would be declined access to the refugee camps, because that's where so many of your your services would be needed. What would be the reason given to you for declining your access to refugee camps? I think most of the time they're saying, no, we've got it. Mm. We've got the personnel, we've got the... You know, we are managing just fine. Thank you very much. Yeah. Okay. So they're basically I think I could safe even face. Actually, uh, go ahead. Sorry, Judge Jim. Uh, I guess no. They, I guess they just want to save face. They don't want the word to get out that the situation's not in control like they say it is, because then there might be some political upheaval in their country. So it's just politics, huh? Yeah, it truly is. So you are involved in mental health as a mental health professional, and and many times. I, I hate to say this, but many times our veterans are fortunate if they just lose a limb or, or have a broken leg or something because it's visible. Uh, but the ones that come back, we call it PTSD now. It used to be called shell shock, but that is not so visible and, and much more lengthy to treat. What kind of treatments can you as the mental health official from Doctors Without Borders give these people, and how long would it last? Because it's it's an ongoing problem. Uh, how, do you have follow up? How do you how do you address somebody that's been through a war zone, lost a child, lost a parent, that sort of thing, uh, and is has that PTSD or or mental health problems? How how, do, how can you address that? Well, the first thing I want to just clarify is that I'm going as a mental health officer. But the reality is that the patients will be seen by locally hired counselors. So I'm going to manage a team of locally hired counselors. And we do this because they know the language. They know the culture. They know the community. They actually live there, right? So whatever's happening, and it could be an HIV epidemic. It could be trauma. It could be kidnapping. It could be um, sexual violence. They're living it. So they really know. So those are the people who are actually going to sit with the um, patient. And we're, we don't do much with diagnostics and labeling, that kind of thing. We really look at what is happening for this person now. What do they need now to get them back to their previous kind of level of functioning, if you will? So our biggest goals are, and I could say, too, our goals go beyond what maybe somebody thinks about mental health. They think... Mental health is just the absence of mental illness, but it's not. It's about overall well-being. So we're going to go in and say, okay, we want to decrease this person's suffering. We want to decrease the consequences of stress and trauma, whatever that looks like. If they're not eating, they're not sleeping, they're isolating, they're drinking alcohol, whatever it is. We want to 
increase kind of get them back connected to their environment, to their to each other. In conflict, one of the biggest things is the trust issue, right? You never know who's on what side. <laughs> so sure. maybe they don't trust their neighbor. They don't trust their brother. So reestablish some of that. We want to get coping and emotional support up and running and really just get them back to their daily functioning. That's our bottom line goal. Just Karen Stewart, bless you, bless who, what you're doing, and Doctors Without Borders, an apolitical group, just independent, impartial, neutral. We're going to come back after this break and hear a little bit more. It's just heartwarming to hear these various things are happening, and we'll hear how other people, too, can get more involved. But we'll come back after these messages, so please stay tuned. We've got more. Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for the keywords Voice America. Once you are part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our timeline. Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for Voice America. The Libertarian Party is the third largest political party in the United States, and it's more successful than ever. We don't just talk the talk of individual liberty and free markets. We also walk the walk. Libertarian Party candidates are getting elected to office across the United States, and we are making a difference. The Libertarian Party is also the only third party that routinely has ballot access in every state. Our achievements and influence grow every year, and you can be part of that success. You can register as a Libertarian Party voter in your state to help us achieve easier ballot access. You can also visit lp.org today to become a member of the Libertarian Party, no matter which party you register with. Join the Libertarian Party today at lp.org. Together, we can move mountains. We're with you wherever Alexa and Google are. At home, in the car, on your smart TV, and your connected devices. Hey, Alexa. Hey, Google. Play my favorite Voice America podcast on TuneIn. It's just that easy. But don't forget to make sure you actually mention the name of the podcast show to make it work. You are listening to All Rise, the Libertarian Way with retired Judge Jim Gray. To find out more about Judge Gray, visit JudgeJimGray.com. That's JudgeJimGray.com. Now, back to All Rise. Well, welcome back. This is Judge Jim Gray on All Rise. and We are based upon what we're hearing from Karen Stewart of Doctors Without Borders. People are all rising together and, and being brought back into life. Uh, it's just an enormously important thing. They are apolitical, which is kind of what libertarian values are. We just do it for the right reason uh, and the rest, uh, impartial, independent, neutral. So so thank you, Karen, again for sharing these views with us. One question I had, though, uh, in your 
your last comments before the break was that, okay, you are funding the local professionals. And you, my goodness, I'm shocked you have 43,000 people in the field. But, I mean, I didn't see how that could happen except to now hear that 90% of them are locals. But what happens if you go to a place where there's been a calamity, there's been fighting, etc., Yemen, wherever, and there aren't any local professionals, uh, or at least not any that you feel conf- comfortable or confident in, uh, what can you do then? Well, the reality is we do find people wherever we are. I have had teams of counselors who um, are master's level psychologists, right? That was in Kashmir and Bangladesh. But then other countries where that's not a possibility, I hire lay counselors. So this is a person who has no education in mental health, no education in counseling, no experience, but they interview saying, I want to help my community. And so I choose a team and then I train them. Right? So they, they're a lay counselor. And it's amazing how much um, excellent work a lay counselor can do um, with that training. So that's often what we're doing. Now, when we go in, when we leave, it's true. All of those people, let's say the team was 50, 50 people, when we pull out, they're not going to have a job. But one of the things I've really seen and learned to appreciate is that they now have Doctors Without Borders on their resume. And that goes a long way for them. So whether they look to another agency, maybe they're looking wherever, it's very strong that they've worked for us. So that's one thing. I have had two different times teams who have decided, um, counseling teams, that we are going to pull out because, you know, the needs have gone down, so we're going to pull out. They formed their own nonprofit, their own non-governmental agency, and then put forth for funding so that they could continue the work in their community as that entity. I've seen that work once where they did get funding, and the other time it did not. I mean, they did form, but they were able, not able to secure funding. So, but 50% is pretty good. Pretty good statistics in that particular area. That's just wonderful. By the way, my wife has asked me to throw in a little silliness in each of my episodes, and I usually do it right about now. So we were talking about politics earlier, which is not my favorite topic in the world, but she would have me tell you that the problems with practical jokers is that sometimes they get elected. And uh, we've seen that all too often. Politics is not my favorite, uh, favorite thing. Instead, groups, foundations, Apolitical groups like Doctors Without Foundation, without uh, Doctors Without Borders, independent, impartial, neutral—they call themselves that—and they're getting just marvelous results. So that's that's just really an important important part of this. So, what kind of follow-up do you get into then? And uh, I guess you've mentioned a lot of that, but follow-up—they are on your speed dial. That you have those connections, which has to be enormously helpful. Uh, so I'm inspired. I'm getting a little older here. I'm going to stay in the in the legal profession. But if somebody wanted to pursue a career uh, with the Doctors Without Borders, be it medical or otherwise, uh, what could they do? What do they look into? What what could they expect to encounter? Well, the first step would be um, going to the website. So that's doctorswithoutborders.org. And what we're, I have to tell you that um, when you go out, all people are paid. We are paid staff. We don't have any volunteers. Everyone receives a basic stipend and health care. All your accommodation, your transportation, vaccination, all of that is covered. But here's the kicker. For everyone that we are requesting that wants to work with us, 
you need to be available for nine to 12 months. So we have some short, shorter assignments, but that's only for surgeons or for anesthesia providers. Everyone else, be it doctor, uh, nurse, midwife, epidemiologist, mental health, pharmacist, logs, like technical logistics, supply logistics, all of those people need to be available for nine to 12 months. We also continuous. require at least Con yeah, continuous in-country yeah. in country for nine to 12 months. Yeah, like I'll use myself for an example. I worked full-time for almost eight years. So what that looked like is I was in-country for one year, and then I was back home to the U.S. for maybe two months, resting, seeing family, friends, and then I would go again to a different country for another year. So that's how I worked for that period of time as a full-time person. So and one of the, the big thing that we really need is French. We have many, many French-speaking countries, and we have very few French speakers stepping forward. So if a person is interested and they speak French, definitely um, look into the website. Yeah. So you have been with Doctors Without Borders for how long, and how many countries have you worked in in that period of time, Karen Stewart? Yes, I started in 2004, and I've been on 11 assignments in nine countries during that time. What were they? I w I've mostly been in Asia, actually. Um, Indonesia, Papua New Guinea, Sri Lanka, India, Bangladesh, Uzbekistan. And then in Africa, I was in Zimbabwe, Nigeria, and Democratic Republic of Congo. It'd be hard to be married and do, and pursue this. Uh, do many people get married and both of them are assigned together, or how does that work? You know, that's a very good point, Judge Jim. Um, it's it is difficult to maintain relationships when you're doing this. So, if a person's interested, that first assignment, that nine to twelve month assignment, would be alone. They would never sign a couple together. But if you are making Doctors Without Borders your career, and perhaps you've done one or two assignments, then it is possible that you could be as a couple going somewhere, as long as it works for the need. So that's the thing. If, if you're both a doctor, no. But if you have perhaps a logistic person and a nurse, then that's possible. You might be able to get to the same project together. How many medical doctors of various fields are actually working full-time for Doctors Without Borders right now? Do you have any idea? You know what? I actually don't have that number, but I know it's a small number. When you look at who's doing the work that we're doing, even though we're called Doctors Without Borders, doctors are a very small percent of who's actually on assignment in the field. Because you send out the support staff and then recruit local doctors and, uh, and give them assistance uh, and that sort of thing? Correct, yeah. And there's just so much is done by nursing, by midwives, by, you know, all Sir. these other ideas. One of the things that um, Doctors Without Borders, where we're very, very strong, is logistics. I mean, we have our own um, area. So we can, we can load planes and fly them into a crisis area within 24 hours. So that's we don't rely on third party to supply or distribute aid. We're independent. We have an integrated supply chain. So we, we have our four logistical centers. We have one in Europe, Africa, East Asia, and Central America. 
So when something happens, we are there in a hurry. And that's one of the things that really uh, kind of separates us from many other organizations. That's amazing. Do you own your own planes by chance, or do you quickly charter planes for these operations? You know what? I'm not sure on that, actually. Hmm. But the logistics, I was going to ask, you know, if you're going to perform surgery, my goodness, you can't just do it at the drugstore. You've got to uh, have the bed, the beds and the facilities and the rest. So you fly those, uh, that equipment in with you uh, within 24 hours of a breakout of violence or an earthquake or something? Absolutely. It's, it's, it is something to see, I'm telling you, to watch uh, actually a whole hospital unload and then just pop up. And inside, we're talking everything. We're talking chairs, beds, clipboards, medicines, everything that's needed for either a surgical unit or a cholera hospital, whatever it is that we need. And it's amazing. And if it's not, you know, if it's not a dire emergency, then we're going to send the majority of that by sea, right, to reduce our cost. So it just depends kind of what's, what's happening. But we, we have developed and we have produced prepackaged disaster kits that are ready within hours. Bless you. What is your budget for year? Do you have any idea how large an operation Oof, is? I, you know what? I honestly, I don't know the numbers, but we, it's broken down very well on that website, doctorswithoutborders.org. We have our 2018 annual report is in there. I, I can tell you, like, I don't know what the budget is, but I do know that I think it's 88% at this time is going directly back into programs. Um, yeah, so we, the admin, the management are not getting a big chunk, which is really, really another piece I just absolutely love about Doctors Without Borders. Well, after talking with you, uh, I don't remember what it is I'm donating per month, but uh, by next Monday, I'm going to double it. I'm just so pleased and proud of, of what you're doing. Uh, getting back to the career possibilities, uh, so someone comes in off the street or they apply and the rest, what kind of training do you give them or what kind of requirements do you have? If I would just get into helping logistically or, or I was a nurse or whatever, what, what kind of training do you require? What kind of can what kind of training do you provide? Well, first, let me say, Judge Jum, thank you so much for doubling. I, I have to tell you, our monthly contributors are a huge piece of what keeps us going. And even it can be small, but it's, it's that we know we can count on it every month. So that's fantastic. So thank you. Um, well, the first thing, like I said, when you apply, your very first step would be to look at the website and look at those essential requirements. Can I be away for 9 to 12 months? Do I have two years of professional experience? Have I worked in a low-resource setting, right? Because we don't want to hire someone who's never been outside of the United States, and we want to know that they've been uncomfortable somewhere. Um, experience as a manager, a supervisor, super helpful. So if all of that works and you apply online, then the next step is going to be a phone interview. If you're successful with that, you're going to go on to a face-to-face -face interview at the New York office. Then if you're successful, you go to a pool of aid workers who are waiting for placement. So again, there's competition. There's different operational centers throughout the world who are also saying, I want my guy to go. No, I want mine to go. So it takes some time. But then the bottom line, when you get your placement, you're ready to go, you're going to do your 9 to 12 months, then yes, there is training. We have, like I have myself, a mental health advisor 
that I speak with. I get all the background on the country. I get the background on what's happening, what are the issues there, the conflict, what are the numbers, what's going on, what's our project doing, um, what are our hopes to do. All of that comes in at various stages as you get closer and closer to the actual project. Um, and then once you're there, if things you need more than you have, then absolutely those people are on call. You can contact operational centers, and I can, like, I can reach out to a psychiatrist at any time if I get stuck as a mental health provider, a little, you know, something beyond my scope. So, yes, you always have that support. And then we do have different, you know, full-on trainings. We have one- and two-week trainings for supply logisticians on how to manage, you know, huge numbers of medicines and that kind of thing. What what gratifying work! Uh, you you can see me smiling. I expect even over the radio, Karen Stewart, <laughs> when you said when you said one thing that we are looking. We want to know that our applicants have been uncomfortable somewhere, which says a lot because uh, you know you don't have many Hilton hotels where you're going, and uh, if people are going to go over and complain, they're going to simply uh, uh, cause more problems than they're going to help resolve. That's kind of like uh, I was thinking the outward bound program, which is a way of showing people that, hey, you're going to have to climb this mountain or, or be uncomfortable, you can do it. And, and it's important that people do that. I, I can certainly see why you include that in part of your training. How do you, how do you discern whether somebody has been uncomfortable somewhere? What, what lack of comfort do you, are you looking for? Well, we're just looking at, at low resource setting. So if that's in humanitarian context, that's wonderful. But it doesn't have to be. Maybe a person has worked... Um, I, yeah, somewhere for a three-month stint. Even even if someone has worked perhaps here um, in the United States on the Indian reservations, so just somewhere where they've had um, been around people not of themselves, people who are really dealing with being marginalized and living in poverty, and and they yeah, and they themselves have been uncomfortable not having yeah, just like you said, not having you know a bathroom around the corner, not a shower every day, so. So it really is just that. Yeah, there's not a checklist per se, but we just want to make sure that they've had some experience around that. Oh, well, come on. No, I have to have a shower every day. I might even perspire. I, I expect I would not be able to be accepted with Doctors Without Borders. So you've been with them, my goodness, uh, since 2004 in 19 countries yourself. Um, there are always going to be natural catastrophes. In fact, in the Philippines, they've had a, a volcanic eruptions of some serious nature. and You're going to have earthquakes. You're going to have these problems. But how do you see it now? Uh, Karen Stewart, as to the status of the world as far as these human disasters that we're inflicting upon each other. Are they worse today than they were in 2004? Do they go up and down? Are we aiming in one direction or another from your perspective? Well, I mean, something I can I, that always sticks with me, when I started in 2004 with them, uh, the number of kind of the people who were forced from their home, who were displaced from their home, was 33 million. That number right now in 2020 is 70 million, 7-0. So, I mean, we're having an unprecedented movement of people who are fleeing their homes. I mean, there's ongoing humanitarian emergencies just everywhere. Yemen, Syria, right? Our top countries, um, I think in 2018, were South Sudan, Yemen, and Syria, and Democratic Republic of Congo. 
So that's a constant. And then when we look, uh, just like you said, with the um, volcano, there's the extreme weather conditions, right? And what that means is we're going to have a spread of what are considered vector-borne diseases. So basically from mosquito, from ticks, from fleas, and all of that's malaria, that's dengue fever. So all of that coming together, we've got more drought, we have more desertification, and then, yeah, just this mass displacement. So with all of that, um, yeah, the needs can only get higher. I, I regret to say that you have supplied inform you've supplied information as to my beliefs uh, that uh, there, but it's staggering to think that in 2004, 32 million people around the world were displaced. That's a lot of people, and now it's more than double that. You say uh, 70 million people, yep. that all of these various things, and they have no resources uh, except good folks like you with, with Doctors Without Borders. So again, just please accept our appreciation and uh, hopefully our support all the way around, including financial. So what do you see about the future of Doctors Without Borders? You've been with them for 15, 16 years. Uh, you're, are you larger now, more impactful now than you were when you began? And how do you see it 10 years from now, Karen Stewart? Well, I, we are much larger because again, when I started, there were more like 30,000 people working in the field, and now we're at 43,000 people working in the field. So I think, I think it's a balance, right? Well, we, again, we are a movement, so we're not, we're not owned by the bosses or whatever. We're all thinking together, and a lot of the conversation is about how do we remain to be as effective as we are and not get too big, right? So we're getting bigger, and we're managing it. But when is that? When do we cross that line where we're no longer effective? We're just too big. So it's it's a method. You know, the the needs are there. There's more needs than we're actually meeting. Absolutely, but we have to be careful because it, it's not. It's a finite resource, right? Not just the finance, not just the money, but staffing. For us to be able to provide the quality of staffing that we do, we have to have excellent oversight and management and know what's happening in all these areas. So, so it's a really, it's a balance, right? On, and how do we meet the needs, but not get, not go past our limit? Well, we spoke earlier about the, one of the major benefits of Doctors Without Borders is their flexibility. But like you're saying, the larger you get, the less flexible you inherently would be. Although 43,000 people are a lot of people, but uh, I, I'm involved professionally and, and as a judge mediations, trying to help people resolve their disputes, things like that. And I found that it's just, the bureaucracy is there. And you go to insurance companies, you go to large corporations, you even go to homeowners associations. And, oh, I can't make the decision. We have to go back and talk to this group and that person and the rest. And it just takes a long time to get a decision. You can't do that in, in your nature of work. So keep your flexibility clearly important. Are there any other similar groups? Uh, I don't know of any. Uh, Doctors Without Borders is singular as far as I know. Are there other groups around the world that are doing, in effect, kind of what you're doing? You know, I think there are many, of course, um, NGOs, non-governmental organizations out there, but I myself have not seen with the independence that we have. I can, I'll give you an example. This I love this example. So this is Indonesia. I was actually going to a meeting that was all about mental health in Aceh. So Aceh is a province on the island of Sumatra in Indonesia. 
And there were about 10 different agencies represented at this meeting. And every single person was saying, when we get the funding, we're going to hire three counselors. When we get this, we're going to go here. When this happens, we might do this. Out of all 10 agencies, I was the only person representing Doctors Without Borders to be able to say, you know what? We've been here three weeks. We've seen 200 people in these five areas, and I've got five counselors online. And it really, that was the, the, like a turning point for me that I thought, we really do function very differently than many or most of the agencies out there. I have felt numbers of times, and I know all, everyone in our audience has felt the same numbers of times, that, gosh, you see these people in refugee camps or displaced or having malaria or whatever. I wish I could do something. I wish I could help. Well, look, sport fans, we can just assist Doctors Without Borders. These people are just made in heaven from my standpoint, apolitical and the rest. Do you have other partners? I know you have – I'm a, a minor partner as an as – a, contributor, but do you have other NGOs that partner with you on any various occasions, Karen? You know what? We actually do not partner, per se. Like I said, we, we, when we go, we always see who's there and what are they doing. So we, we don't want to um, duplicate services. We don't want to do what's being done. So we always have a check-in, but I would say, I would never say we partner with anyone. We want to maintain that independence um, at all times. Tell us uh, an individual victory that you have had where, it, just just to, to brag a little bit, but uh, tell us, just put us boots on the ground. You've gone to such and such a place. They had such and such a problem. What were you yourself able to contribute to that that you can recall and share with us? I think for me, the, one of the biggest wins was in Aceh. So we actually went, the I went because of tsunami in 2004 the big tsunami to Southeast Asia. But once we got there, we realized, you know what? The medical need is met by all these other agencies. We pulled back and we did mental health, which no one was doing. So we were there for, I was there for one year servicing mental health. Then we realized, okay, it's time for us to go. We were going to close. And we put together a bearing witness project, a photo exhibition to talk about this 30-year war that had happened in Aceh and was now finished. So it was, a, it was a huge project in that we met mental health, but then we also did this big bearing witness piece. So for me, that was, yeah, it was fantastic to be able to do both sides of that. I've said this several times on our show before, but in Peace Corps training, I learned two things among others. And one was that people will not change their ways, their beliefs, unless there's a felt need. That is that they have to feel like at least it's coming from within them. So uh, you go to these countries, you're, gonna, you're not going to be able to perpetuate anything unless they can see from within themselves, hey, this is the right way to go as if it was their own idea. But the second was equally important that a program you put in will not be successful unless it's just a one-shot deal, unless it will continue on without you. So when Doctors Without Borders goes in, and yes, you pay staff and you, you train and you encourage, but uh, to what degree do you plant the seeds such that they do continue without you after you have pulled up stakes and moved, moved elsewhere? Well, I think um, a lot of it is we hand back over. We hand over to the um, Ministry of Health. So we leave behind the physical structures, the buildings, the clinics, whatever it is, and then we hand over to Ministry of Health whatever we put in place. And sometimes that's staff. Maybe they pick up and take the staff and hire them. Um, but we're going to provide the, 
supplies and logistics for some time until that partner organization, if you will, that one that's going to take over can get into the activity. So when you take a medical theater, for example, where you do surgery or something like that, you put it in your plane and fly it there within 24 hours or whatever, when you leave, you leave that physical plant with them? Absolutely. Oh, that's good. So you take new stuff every time or virtually. Well, that's just marvelous. Look, um, quickly in the short time left to us, do you see the future of the Doctors Without Borders still increasing and you've got to feel good about it? Are you optimistic about its being able to contribute off into the future, Karen Stewart? Absolutely. I do. I feel good about it. Now, one of the pieces that we didn't hit on is our medical research. So we, we, we are not only reaching patients and servicing, but we're gathering valuable medical data. And Ebola is a perfect example of this, right? So what came from the 2014 to 2016 epidemic that's now we're in 2018, 2020 still with the latest is treatment, right? We have two new treatments. We have two new vaccines. And all of that came from gathering and monitoring and evaluating that medical data. So it's a huge, um, important piece to us at Doctors Without Borders. Karen Stewart, Doctors Without Borders, thank you. We tip our cap to you. We bow to you in appreciation. What a contribution you are making in the name of us all, in the name of, of human beings and, and humanitarian work. So again, just just <laughs> thank you for that. And I'm going to going to continue to support you, and I hope our audience does as well. Go to doctorswithoutborders.org and learn and, and assist. So again, we see lots of bad things are happening in the world, and a lot of them we cannot control, but we can control our response to them, because there are a lot of good things happening too, and we've been listening for this past hour here on All Rise, how people like Doctors Without Borders are assisting, helping they're saints. So thank you for that, Saint Karen Stewart, and uh, thank your colleagues for us as well. And tune in next time. And listen to another inspirational story or discuss issues directly that, that most people do not discuss here on All Rise. So with that, again, with our thanks to Karen, to Stewart, to the Doctors Without Borders, I recess this like I always do by saying life is good. Talk to you soon. Thanks for listening today. All Rise, the Libertarian Way with retired Judge Jim Gray can be heard every Friday at 10 a.m. Eastern Time and 7 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. We know you'll want to join us again next week and tell your friends that help is on the way. Strengthen my thoughts that help us control.